0: Hello and welcome to this weekend's Hong Kong Heritage, which is in memory of Alison McEwen, who died last month. Alison was born in Hong Kong in 1950 and would later become a lawyer. She loved her childhood here, swimming and sailing. And while she left Hong Kong at the age of 12, she would return later to work for the ICAC, or Independent Commission Against Corruption. She married BBC correspondent Tim Luard. I interviewed Alison and Tim on Hong Kong Heritage about three times about Alison's father, Major Colin McEwen, who was part of a daring escape from Hong Kong. Colin was a physical training instructor, but also a part of Z-Force, a Hong Kong group of the Special Operations Executive, or the SOE, which was a secret British World War II organisation. On December the 25th, 1941, as Hong Kong surrendered to the Japanese army, an audacious escape plan began off at Play Chow to extricate the one-legged Chinese Admiral Chan Chak, who had been the Kuomintang's representative here. Also on board was Colin McEwen. but while he had been a part of this dramatic event, he never talked to his daughters about it. Alison discovered his diary of the escape after his death. In fact, 68 men would escape on motor torpedo boats to Mers Bay and then carry out a nerve wracking four-day walk through China to Wai Chow. Allison Alison and Tim would retrace this group's steps decades later and Tim wrote a book about this adventure, Escape from Hong Kong, Admiral Chan Chak's Christmas Day Dash, 1941.
1: I had the sort of father that everyone would hope to have, a really sort of supportive kind, very funny man. And uh, growing up with him in Hong Kong, he introduced us to the islands, sailing, the sort of life that you look back on and think, what a what a wonderful childhood you had. So I was always very fond of my father, and when he died uh, quite young in his late 60s, it was quite, quite a loss. I, I knew a little bit about his war in China, when he'd been working for the British Army Aid Group, the BAAG, under Lindsay Ride. He was very fond of Lindsay Ride and would would talk about those days in a sort of jocular way, playing mahjong with the wives of the uh, Nationalist Generals, that kind of thing. But I knew nothing about the escape from Hong Kong, and that only came to light when my mother died in 2004. And as the middle daughter, for some reason, I got all the family papers. My other sisters were busy with other things in their lives. And going through his papers, we found this little school notebook and a pencil account of the days leading up to the fall of Hong Kong and the escape from Hong Kong with the one-legged admiral. That sort of started this whole adventure into retracing the story and trying to find out a bit more about it. So when you'd been growing up with your father here
0: in Hong Kong, you'd known him as a physical education or a PE teacher, and he'd returned to, to live in Hong Kong after the war, but uh, you were not aware of this
1: escape before seeing those diary accounts? No, not at all. He, he had come out to Hong Kong as a young uh, cadet to join the civil service, and then, of course, he was a volunteer during the war. He was hand to be a member of the Special Operations Executive, Z-Force as they were known in Hong Kong.
0: So was that like the SAS,
1: the, sort of the famous SAS of Britain? That's right. They, they were sort of uh, trained in intelligence work. He was uh, trained in the use of explosives and in fact ended up putting a, a limpet mine on a Japanese ship in the harbour in Hong Kong during the war, sailing from a little rowing boat.
0: So you come across this diary account among his papers um, after your, your mother died in 2004. So what did you decide to do then? You've got, the, you've got this account of this amazing escape with an admiral with a wooden leg and uh, then what did you both decide to do with it after that?
2: Well I had just retired from the, the BBC and I guess was looking for something to do but reading this account I remember one particular sentence leapt out at me. We landed on a lovely beach and headed off up the valley. And as dawn broke, the skies cleared. We headed along paddy paths and hill paths until we found a shady clearing with a covering of trees as the Japanese helicopters flew overhead. And we ate tangerines fresh from the tree and i, I just got very excited reading this uh, whole account of their four-day trek after their motor torpedo boats uh, landed after earlier adventures when the admiral was wounded and hiding in a cave and i was determined to to find out where this lovely beach was and having studied chinese i was able to go over wartime maps the British Library and the Imperial War Museum, and I dug out other diaries of people who were part of this uh, 68-strong escape party. And gradually we we pieced a route together and we determined we would go back to Hong Kong and uh, reenact the escape.
0: Yeah, what an extraordinary. So over the past uh, number of years, there's been a whole host of developments, really. You reenacted the walk and uh, having to negotiate both Chinese bureaucracy and also buildings, obviously in a very developed southern China. You've obviously written your book, Escape from Hong Kong, Admiral Chan Chak's Christmas Day Dash, 1941. Do you feel that your work 2004 onwards also sparked a lot of other people to sort of check out their relatives' papers?
2: Yes, we spoke to you before that initial walk along the 80-mile route to Wai Chao and we did most of that and that was amazing. But when we got back, we found that other descendants had also got interested and we formed this group called HERO, Hong Kong Escape Reenactment Organization, and the following year, Alison and I reenacted our reenactment with 70 others, and that was much more complicated with all sorts of liaising with Chinese officials who insisted on, on guiding us. We didn't get to go over the same mountain paths, which were considered too sensitive, and the temples where they slept and that sort of thing were sometimes not available for such a big group.
0: So, if we go back to Christmas Day 1941,
1: where was your father and what was he up to at that point? My father, Colin McEwen, was uh, he'd been separated i think there were three of them had got separated from the main part of z force the special operations men and he was behind the japanese lines and sorry this is before christmas day he had to make his way back to hong kong island and his superior a canadian called mike kendall who's quite a hero of this story that was liaising with senior officials to provide an escort for the one-legged admiral and his uh, ADC to get them out of Hong Kong when it fell. There was a great worry that it would be a huge loss of face to the British if the admiral was taken, after all the help he'd given um, the British. Yes, because he
0: was based in Hong Kong. He was the, was he the national, how would you have described him? Was he sort of the nationalist admiral? I mean, he was here to, to help the British against the Japanese.
2: Yes, Chanchak had had a, a long history, as a senior member of the Guomindang, the he was the southern president of, of the party, having taken part in, in the 1911 revolution. Uh, so by the time 41, he was, he was a, a seasoned veteran, a, a sort of battered warlord in a, effect. He had a navy rather than a, an army in, in the 30s and the chaos of, of China at that time. And uh, he lost his leg during the blockade of the forts outside Canton in 38 they like amputated in Hong Kong and stayed here as China's chief representative both political and military. I think the only time there's ever been such a post and he was involved in all sorts of gun smuggling to the nationalists within occupied China and generally trying to promote the cause of, of China in a Hong Kong that before the war really didn't care very much about supporting China. I mean, Britain just wanted to avoid getting involved in another war against Japan. And then during the battle itself, he played an invaluable role keeping the Chinese population of Hong Kong both fed and, and safe uh, and loyal. And he eliminated the the many fifth colonists who were in the pay of the Japanese and were sort of putting uh, sand in fuel tanks and rice bags and generally sabotaging the British defense even to the extent of sniping from upstairs stories.
0: So during these chaotic the final few days before the surrender of Hong Kong on December the 25th, 1941. It's becoming imperative, as the British see that they're losing Hong Kong, to get the Admiral out.
2: Yes, the Admiral was number one on Japan's blacklist, his chief of staff, SKE, uh, likewise. But uh, Britain also had many intelligence men and others who would have faced torture and possible execution if they had fallen into Japanese hands. So by the time the inevitable surrender came, 3 p.m. on Christmas Day, Uh, there was this bunch of a dozen or so ready to make a speedy getaway as soon as the surrender happened. And this they did going down Queens Road in a couple of cars at breakneck speed and winding up at Aberdeen, where the plan was that the last vestiges of the British Navy, five motor torpedo boats, would be waiting to take them away. In fact, because Aberdeen was under heavy bombardment still, the MTBs were hiding behind uh, Plei Chow Island, And uh, this this party of 12, having found a broken-down launch, uh, soon came under heavy fire from the hillsides, already occupied by the Japanese. They had to abandon ships, swim to Aplei Chao, clamber in their underwear over the cold, bare hills. Uh, Some of them were hit. Eventually, they found one of the motor torpedo boats, and that night, uh, with the survivors on board, and the 50 crew of the MTBs, uh, now part of the escape party, they made a a daring dash through the naval blockade mounted by the japanese and uh, landed on the beach at moose bay Nanao.
0: extraordinary really because as you say i mean the the japanese army they're moving south They'd, they'd obviously come over the the hills of kowloon and move south and the last real battle is now very much in southern Hong Kong. And underneath that, they're they're trying to get this admiral out. But what I also find extraordinary about this tale is that Yes, there were those that were shot at and there were those that injured, but considering the dangers, what was the death toll on this escape?
1: In in fact, it was incredibly low. The the VIPs on the launch, which was going to reconnoitre with the uh, MTBs, the motor torpedo boats, was shot up and the men had to dive overboard. There were two casualties there, two men died, and two of the senior men were injured, Admiral Chanchak and McDougall were both both took bullet wounds. But of the 68 who made it to Nanao, including the two injured men, they all arrived safely back at their final destination. And I still think to this day that's incredible, because there would have been this bounty on their heads. Yes, particularly with Admiral Chan Chak. There was a a huge, in modern terms, it was a huge
0: bounty on on his head. And so they're now, they're on the beach at Nanao, and they've got to proceed for the next, what, three to four days, isn't it, of walking. And they don't know, to a certain extent, whether the Chinese villagers are going to put a a message through to the Japanese.
2: No, they were very uncertain. In, In Hong Kong at the time, everyone thought if you went to mainland China... If if you didn't run into Japanese, you'd run into bandits or pirates, uh, you'd get your throat slit. So there was this basic uncertainty about being in China at all. None of these sailors had ever ever been there, certainly. Luckily, they had Chan Chak, this one-legged admiral, who was uh, very popular in southern China. Uh, He he was one of the better sort of uh, Kuomintang leaders, and he was welcomed there by villagers, and they laid on you know, hot drinks and food for this huge party of British sailors who, after all, were the ones who had been responsible for seizing Hong Kong originally, um, the Opium War, exactly 100 years before. They were no friends of local Chinese. But throughout this four-day, 80-mile hike, they were uh, welcome wherever they went. They, w- they were never given away. The guerrillas, that was a slightly lucky, lucky accident that Chan Chak had known the leader of the local band of guerrillas, who had once uh, been one of his soldiers uh, in Canton. And uh, he had done some smuggling for Chan Chak to get arms to the nationalists. And so he owed a favor, and so he supplied money. And in fact, Chan did have to pay large sums of money on the way to bandits and, and border posts who always required to be bribed. But the ordinary people certainly saved them in the end. And when they got to Wai the nearest nationalist army base, they were welcomed by the entire populace. And there was a ramshackle procession of very tired and hungry uh, British sailors marching through the streets accompanied by firecrackers and dogs and <laughs> cheering citizens.
0: So just to recap on some of the information here, I'm talking with Alison McEwen and her husband, Tim Luard. Alison's father was Colin McEwen, who was part of a 68-strong group of sailors and soldiers who escaped from Hong Kong on the day of the surrender to the Japanese military on the 25th of December 1941. The daring journey took them by motor torpedo boat to the mainland and then four days on foot to Wai Chow. The main person in the party was Admiral Chan Chak, the one-legged admiral, who had been the Kuomintang's representative in Hong Kong. Along the way, local villagers would help the group.
2: The East River group, the, the budding communist group at the time, hadn't really got going. So although they helped lay a, an escape trail for future people from the camps in Hong Kong who, who used this trail, and at that, by that stage, the East River column were helping them this time, this particular escape group were basically former pirates and bandits and smugglers, <laughs> uh, not very political at all. But this this area, 80 miles to Yichang, was a sort of no man's land where where anything went. But there were, were Japanese troops lightly occupying it, and so the, the climax was really getting across the main communications road, uh, patrolled heavily by the Japanese. And they, they managed to do that at dead of night.
0: Yes, you've got some great descriptions of that. They're, they're this, this, this is the last frontier, the final frontier to freedom. And just the, the one diary entry is just hearing the Japanese vehicles, or the sound of the engine sort of disappearing and just knowing that, that, that kind of freedom awaits. But, yeah, uh, and just all the emotion of that, although the... the it strikes me that the diary entries, uh, I don't know whether it was men of that generation, but the, the diary entries are quite tempered. They're not, there's, uh, yes, there's relief, but there's not too much kind of
1: Latin emotion there. I was just going to say, they're very prosaic, aren't they? They're much more concerned with their footwear. One's wearing plimsolls. soles, one's got a two left Feet, shoes to wear, and, and they're much more concerned about sort of getting hold of duck eggs or the odd tangerine. There's not so much about the sort of the the, the thrill of the escape. It's very very down to earth. But I think you may be right. It's a sort of the, the way men behaved at the time, don't you think? Not not so much a personal drama, but just this is this is what we do. We shall soldier on, and we shall come through.
2: And I think one, one of the joys of the story is just the sheer variety in the escape group you know, and even some of the, the the sailors, you know, real tough guys who just avoided becoming coal miners and joined the Navy, age 17, uh, one called Les Barker, you know, kept this really colourful diary about what he was feeling as he went along, basically looking forward to getting home to his girl, At the end of the war, it's a long road across China, the, the food's strange, I can't use chopsticks, you know, and they came to Wai Chao and there were these wonderful nurses and he clearly falls in love with the nurses who bathed his feet and he had a hot bath for the first time and beds. And uh, the once-in-a-lifetime adventure really sings through diaries of both both the stuffy old former cavalry officers from india and these uh, leading seamen like les barker there was one very sad case gilbert thumbs who was obviously the life and soul of the party then everyone liked him he, he was a bridge between officers and and sailors he was a chief petty officer but he had a wife back home in Plymouth, who was actually being bombed heavily, Plymouth being where where British fleets were were based, and when he finally got back to her, you know, after this five-month epic journey, she didn't know if he was alive or dead, he found she was living with a free French officer, the French fleet having arrived in Plymouth, and had a baby by him, uh, which was clearly a bit of a blow. He went back to war, but he never really recovered, and he ended up killing himself.
0: Yes, for me personally, when I read a book like this, I really want to know about the the people themselves that, that for me is is uh, very important that they don 't become kind of cardboard cut out cartoon characters who carried out this escape and then but you have you really tracked. Uh, any number of the people who took part and and, uh, towards the end of the book you see what happened to them and there's some really lovely ones. There's one chap who returns to the Isle of Wight in southern England and continues with his his milk round or there's a chap who who lived till age 93. But there's others, yes, who return home and this was quite a common story for the Second World War that that wives thought that they were dead and they would end up finding that when they came home that their wives had moved on.
2: Yes, I think this obsession of ours with the escape over the past four years one of the great rewards has been tracking down families of others we've got i think 40 members of the, of the party of 68 now that we we know the families of and they've come up with these diaries and letters but also stories of what happened to these men later on in the war many went on to, to fight but there, there were tragic cases like uh, jack thorpe who um, you know, his family had no idea if he was alive or dead, but he, he walked through the, the, the garden gate grinning while, while his uh, mother was doing the washing up one Sunday morning in May uh, 42. He then met his girlfriend again. You know, it seemed all, always rosy, but within weeks he, he was posted to HMS Defiance at Plymouth and then sent up to Scarpa Flow and was on the Arctic convoys to Murmansk and his his ship was hit by two torpedoes and the the entire crew, including Jack Thorpe, just weeks after his wedding died.
0: Yes, this is uh, it, it, there are some sort of tragic stories here and also, of course, this is only you know, it's Christmas Day 1941 that they've escaped from Hong Kong the war would continue for another three years and eight months, so in fact, many of them are going to be re-employed as um, sailors or soldiers in other theatres of war and some made it across to India and others would work with the like your father, would work with the British Army Aid Group, but let's just have a bit more detail on the escape itself you know you were saying that um, the local
1: Chinese they would give them turnips and cabbages when, when they do reach the mission in Wai Chow not only Les Barker but some of the others mentioned having their first uh, British food that they there suddenly there <laughs> are sausages and cake and tea and where they've had to cope with a, a sort of adequate diet. But the, these, these were poor villagers after all. So mainly it was a, a bowl of rice and some tea with veg, some vegetables, whatever they had. in yeah, well,
2: fact, uh, the, the motor torpedo boats were quite well prepared. They, they had known that they might be getting away at the end of the war. So they had laid in not only the only map that the group had on, on the way to Wai which proved invaluable, but all sorts of uh, sweaters and blankets and uh tinned goods you know bully beef and and all the army rations <laughs> or navy rations including rum and so the the 12 vip escapers if you like who, who had had to swim to a chow were delighted to be taken aboard the mtbs and be kitted out in all this gear and then for the next few days they they were tucking into these tin goods and uh rum and everything and in fact even when they got back to Britain five months later, Commander Gandhi says there were still a few tins left that they've been carrying the whole way.
0: Yes, so that certainly helped them on this. So it was a well-planned few days. It wasn't, there was nothing ramshackle about this. In terms of when they were walking along you know, these paths amid the paddy fields, um, did they really have to walk in silence?
2: Yes, my father-in-law, Colin McEwen's boss, Mike Kendall, the head of the SOE or, or Z-Force group, took charge. I mean, the, several of the diaries talk about his stentorian tones calling out, ready to march. Uh, he would allow five minutes break per hour and then we, would shout ready to march. And they all had to set two. And he had strict rules about no smoking, no talking en route and, and that sort of thing. And uh, there was a, a chain of command Chan Chak was clearly the star of the show. He knew the Chinese locals. He was in overall charge. But then the head of the naval group and the head of the the army group would delegate to Mike Kendall uh, command of, of the actual march itself. And uh, they all had rifles. They were very well, well armed. Almost all of them had revolvers. So they did say to themselves, if they did run into a big Japanese Patrol. They would pity that patrol. I mean, one, one of the diarists talks about hiding in the paddy fields um, below the rut of, of the land as a troop of cavalry comes past. The Japanese all mounted, and he said you could reach out and touch the horses' hooves, and that they heard them coming, the, the clink of the uh, bridles, and so they all managed to get down in time. Another time, one of the the guerrillas who was accompanying them uh, let off a shot, and they they all (laughs) fell into the ditch. But it turned out to be nothing very much. So, in in fact, they avoided any major battles after their their first ambush at Apley Chow.
0: Now you're the former Beijing correspondent for the BBC. When, when you were actually going through these diary accounts and uh, other historic references to the trip, did you sometimes have to, because some, some would have been written as they went, others perhaps after a few years they were recalling their experiences? Was it sometimes quite difficult teeing up different diarists' accounts? Were there some that were, as Alison has described, a little bit more down to earth and those that, that like to inject a bit of drama?
2: Well. The- the, the biggest dramatist, if you like, of all, uh, Freddie Guest actually wrote a book uh, in the 50s, which is the became quite a bestseller then, but has subsequently been shown to be um, rather more fantasy than fact. He, he had all sorts of battles, and it was always he, Freddie Guest, who was the star, <laughs> the star of each operation. Uh, he, he was a bit of a boy's own hero. He played played football for Chelsea and polo, and um, was always getting getting into trouble but uh others had very factual low-key diaries there there were all sorts of letters that have have turned up and gradually piecing them together yeah it was like putting together a a jigsaw i as a correspondent obviously i was dealing with current affairs it's been great just dealing with with a bit of history i've now become besotted by by the whole thing and um i think uh, apart from actually meeting all the other relatives of the escape group and quizzing them about their fathers and grandfathers and actually reenacting and retracing the the route of the escape in china my greatest pleasure was just going through the national archives on all these amazing dusty files and uh, piecing the story together. I think there's, there's still a wealth of Hong Kong history contained in the libraries of the, the former colonial power, uh, Britain, uh, in places like the Imperial War Museum and the British Library, and uh, Kew Gardens Archives.
0: What kind of history?
2: Well, uh, I'm not sure.
0: Or oh, is that your next book?
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm not quite sure what, where I'm going to turn next. But I'm just enjoying going through it. but. Certainly a group such as uh, my father-in-law's, the um, SOE, with with their various special units such as Z-Force here and their dealings with Force 136, the the Asian branch of SOE, uh, Sorry, kind of SOE was? Uh, the Special Operations Executive. And um, there were all kinds of co- colorful characters sen- sending back uh, over the top messages to London with you know, caustic comments. I mean, one of my favorite comments in these Foreign Office papers at the National Archives was about uh, reimbursing Chanchak for the wooden leg that, that he lost afterwards. And uh, a very modest claim for, uh, I think, 92 rupees, because the, the replacement leg was bought in India, was put in by the British ambassador in, in Chongqing. And uh, a foreign office uh, official, as only a foreign office man could do, said, I suppose we'd better stump up for this wooden leg.
0: Tim Luard ending the interview there on the escape by Colin McEwen and others, including Admiral Chan Chak from Hong Kong on December the 25th, 1941. Alison McEwen passed away last month. Alison wrote up the diary of her father, and you can have a read of it on the Hong Kong history website, com. Next Saturday morning will be a bumper 50-minute Hong Kong heritage from the different time of 7.10am to 8am so it'll be 20 minutes earlier than usual. And I'll be focusing on all things 1972. It was the year that Stevie Wonder brought out the hit Superstition, one of my favourites. In Hong Kong, Bruce Lee had his second big movie. Governor Marie McLehose went to Shenzhen to look at the new special economic zone. The liner, the Queen Elizabeth, went up in flames. There were deadly floods and landslides, and the Cross Harbour Tunnel was opened. It was the year of the Polaroid camera. And Hong Kong's first container port, plus the opening of Ned Kelly's last stand in Chimsa Choi. So next Saturday's program will be fifty minutes starting at 7.10 AM. The Sunday evening programme will be the regular half hour. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.